Welcome to the Inner Green Deal podcast. What if Trump wins again? The role of compassion in politics. In this special episode, I'm talking to Brian Welch, leading publisher on sustainability, CEO of Mindful.org, and committed rancher from Kansas. I asked Brian how he feels if Donald Trump were to win and what a contested election might mean for America. Knowing the system from the inside, he points to the divisions that he has seen deepening over the years and the media and vested interests that have played a role in that. Yet despite the challenging outlook, Brian also sees many positive developments and talks about the millions of people that discover the power of compassion, a quality that he not only sees as distinctively human and grounding, but also as critical at a time of societal division, environmental mass extinction, and climate change. So take a deep breath and listen to Brian's wisdom while the reality of the US elections slowly unfolds. My name is Jeroen Jans, and thank you for joining the Inner Green Deal podcast. Brian, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. While the final results are not clear yet, more people than expected have voted for Donald Trump. How would you feel if Trump were to win this election? The election of Donald Trump um, would be unwelcome. It would um, be a disappointment for me personally, because I think that his identity is projected then on all of um, on our entire country. And I don't wish for Americans to be characterized by his sort of swaggering aggression that he, um, that he uses as his public persona. Mm. On the other hand, his election will, you know, affirm for a lot of people their own notion of the democratic process people who are predisposed to feel like if he's not elected, that it will be somehow, um, they will somehow have been cheated or robbed. Mm. And so that particular inflamed cultural point might be eased slightly. In the long run, I don't know that unless we address the underlying habits of aggression and accusation, the underlying mechanisms that cause the news media to drive people to opposite ends of the political spectrum, until we address those underlying systemic issues, I'm not sure that the general pathology in American society is going to get any better. It'd be good to explore the systemic part deeper with you in a moment. But for now, with the final results not confirmed yet, how would you feel if the results are contested and perhaps even end up in court? You know, I think it's inevitable that they'll be contested. No matter who wins, the side that doesn't win is going to feel that the election was rigged. Mm. And there's abundant evidence, you know, that there are all kinds of influences on our process. The underlying process, I think, the actual democratic process is as sound as it's ever been probably. Mm. But the polarization of the news media has created an environment where so many people have a vested interest in casting doubt on the democratic process because it gives them a kind of power in a situation where they lose the election that mm. you know both sides are more or less bracing themselves or preparing themselves to make that case 
I think that's tragic in a way because these vested interests are, of course, year after year after year, undermining Americans' confidence in the democratic process. So, you know, in a nutshell, I think it's inevitable that it'll be contested, whether it's contested in court or not. I think the best we can hope for is that the legal system creates a clear outcome that allows the country to be governed. Mm. And then I hope over the next four years, some systemic changes occur that start to heal the rifts in the society. I think the last four years have been particularly bad for America because the, mostly because the president of the United States feeds off of this sense of alienation felt by Mm. his supporters. And so he exaggerates their alienation, their isolation, and they're very receptive to that message. As you know, this sizable group of people then is moved toward the margin by that kind of dialectic, they leave the rest of Americans um, isolated by the same distance. How to bring the two ends of the spectrum or the two sides of American politics closer together seems to me to be the most important question about American democracy that we need to address over the coming years. And so personally, I'm looking forward to the election being over one way or the other. And uh, you know, I hope to see our leaders, our political leaders then leading us toward a more unified country rather than continuing to mine in the chasm that exists between the two sides of American politics. Beautifully said. Um, If we look beyond the presidency for a moment, and even beyond the US, what do you see as the underlying drivers of our unsustainable way of living? There's the fundamentals of the 300-year-old industrial economy in which we all live around the world. And it's an economy that in these early years of its um, hegemony, it ha- that has been fueled by a kind of aggressive ambition that exalts material wealth mm. and that explicitly argues against systems that take human well-being into account. You know, there's this weird dogma around capitalism that says if you control capitalism to any degree to improve the lives of people in general, that you've somehow diminished its creativity, diminished its value. And I admit there's a balance in that and that the industrial economy has in many ways improved the lives of people on average. But it seems sort of dim-witted then to say that we, should, we, shouldn't, ha- we shouldn't express any concern for human well-being in general. Mm. And of course, we've created these pockets, huge uh, populations around the world that derive little, if any, benefit from the industrial economy and um, you know, more or less are, sac- are more or less sacrificed for the ongoing wealth and power of 
of a minority global population who live in very affluent ways. So I think from my perspective, compassion needs to become a fundamental criterion for our decision-making in government, in business, in all of our activities. And it seems rather odd that this peculiarly human gift of compassion, of being able to take into account the well-being of people around the world, future generations, other species, you know, really only human beings can do that. Mm. And yet we don't use it as a criterion in our decision-making as a general rule. On a personal level, we often do. But when it comes to making decisions in business or government, it's never even mentioned, you know. And, it, and finding ways of introducing compassion as a criterion for our decision-making could revolutionize human invention, could revolutionize human institutions in some very important ways. I mean, just imagine how international politics and international industry would be conducted if a primary fundamental criterion was what would do the most good for the largest number of people. And you know, it's not as simple as socialism or communism or something like that. I think individual economic opportunity and you know, in fact, some disparity of income that fuels some degree of ambition and creativity is a very positive thing. But we still need compassion at the center of our decision-making in order to do the right things for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, not to mention the rest of the species in the world, the general environment. How would you define compassion in this way? Because, I mean, I think we all have an understanding of what compassion means in our, in our personal life. How, how would you see this how would you define compassion? What's your definition? And how do you exactly um, see that operational in, let's say, the business world or politics? Sure. I, I think compassion is our interest in improving the lives of other living things. Hmm. I think it's, an, it, you know, it's more than a morality. It's, a, it's an intellectual interest that can be brought to bear on all of our decisions and so you know it's it's not sentimental i think really and too often it's characterized right. as mm -hmm. soft-hearted or sentimental yeah but you know um i raise cattle and sheep on a ranch in kansas and so um I'm responsible, directly responsible for the deaths of dozens of animals every, every year. But, you know, um, I start out every spring with about 75 sheep. And when lambing comes, I then suddenly have 225 sheep. Hmm. And if those extra 150 sheep aren't removed from the land by the time winter comes again, they would, in a couple of months, destroy the pastures. Right. They would cause environmental damage that would take years to repair. And so, you know, we, we operate in a system where 
you know, mortality is necessary, where hard decisions about the allocations of resources must be made. But by the same token, most people seem to be ignoring the fact that we've, by some scientists measured, destroyed two thirds of the species that lived on the planet a hundred years ago. It's a very short time period. Mm. And we have tens of thousands of species that are now extinct because of our activities. That seems to me to be a much more frightening and tragic result of our activities than, than climate change, for instance, which is scary and, and it, it has its own uh, potential for catastrophe. But the species loss catastrophe is already, already well underway. And I think it would change all kinds of decisions in our personal lives and our public lives if we took the lives of those many species, the, the, the diversity of, of beings that we're connected to every day into account, I think we could make decisions in a different way that would make a huge difference in a very short time frame. Mm. I, I don't think of it as a, as a necessarily warm-hearted exercise. I think of it as a, a deeper concern for um, the well-being of creatures of all of every kind. And yeah, you know, you as you suggested earlier, you start with those closest to you, um, and then work outward from there. For me, one of the fascinating aspects of that is the way that the exercise of compassion is enhanced by certain kinds of contemplative practices and exercises that help us get a perspective on our own ego, get a perspective on our own selfishness. And, you know, in every spiritual, every major spiritual tradition, there are big elements of this kind of practice that's designed to reveal to people that their own aggression and ambition, their egotism are all painful to them and destructive to the rest of the world. I think that I cannot make an intellectual case for why everybody should be more compassionate. I certainly can't describe the potential in purely intellectual terms because it's really only fully illuminated when we get a certain, we gain a certain perspective where we can visualize how interconnected everything is. I also think that there are a bunch of movements uh, around the world that are either consciously or unconsciously grasping at that realization. You know, it from hallucinogenics to mindfulness to yoga there's just there are you know millions of people around the world that have sensed that they need this kind of contemplative perspective that it would be fruitful for them and mm -hmm. for the world and they're they're working toward it and um, I'm very excited about what seems to be a growing interest in getting that perspective because I think the exercise of compassion, requires that we, we, we gain deeper perspectives that are, are relatively hard to describe verbally, but um, abundantly real um, when you encounter them. Yeah, thank you. 
And actually, when you think about it, you know, I, so I live in Europe and we look at the US and, um, and sometimes have the sense of it's so fundamentally different, you know, the archetype of the US portrayed in US films, for instance, you know, the hero, the firefighter, the, you know, the um, someone who's ambitious uh, and all of that. And I just wonder if those archetypes, a, a whether you would um, concur with that view of, of the, those being important archetypes in the US and B, if that's true, um, whether the US in particular might struggle with opting for another archetype, which is much more, you know, as you described it, compassionate, open, caring. Um, yeah, I, I just wonder what would it take to transition there? I don't know. That's a great question, Jeroen, and I find it, I find it quite fascinating. There are two ways, I think, to interpret the American identity in this context. One is that, that we're so, you know, we're weaned on aggression. We're weaned on individualism. We, mm. we hold those values of aggression, individualism, and our guns and our, our, our violent sport. We, all those things are part of our national identity. So, yeah, you know, one logical conclusion one might take from that is that, that we are so addicted to aggression that we'll be the last people around the world to seek out alternatives to it. Another way of looking at it, though, would be that Americans are also culturally, I think, um, prone to adventure mm. and to exploring new frontiers, <laughs> to use a cliche, right? <laughs> um, and this frontier of consciousness, this frontier of awareness and compassion might be the sort of thing that kindles um, the American impulse for exploration and for innovation. You know, um, I, I've not lived in other countries. I've traveled a great deal. I cannot speak to how your example of the European identity might be different, but certainly the cliches about our, our various cultures are that there is a, a, there's a, there's more of an instinct for tradition in other countries than there is in the United States. So I don't know how this will go, but one could make the case that, um, that Americans have the potential to embrace this kind of innovation um, with a lot of energy. Mm. And at, at any rate, that's what I hope for. Yeah, beautiful. I, I, the other thing I will say about that is, you know, when, when you talk about diminishing ego and developing a sense of deep compassion for the, the global human population, future generations, other species, really we human beings around the world have not worked very much at all on developing that capacity. We're a long way, I think, 
mm-hmm. from really exercising compassion in a meaningful way in the way we conduct our affairs around the world in every society. So I think it's early days in this pursuit. And, you know, we, we have an opportunity to work together on a global scale to advance this idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it might actually be destructive to make assumptions about how one religion or another religion or one culture or another culture is more adept than anybody else. I think considering what, what um, you know, how, what infants we are in the process of developing compassion that we're, we could sort of characterize everybody as being in the same boat together, which comes around the circle and reinforces the idea of compassion in an interesting way also. <laughs> yes, well, it's, a... it's kind of destructive to start thinking about, well, we're more compassionate than you are, right? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's not exactly a constructive concept, if you know what no, I mean. No, no, I apologize. My apologies, <laughs> right. This, 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 this. But maybe it, it does bring us helpfully to the next point, um, you know, the perception of reality, perhaps, right? And also this element of who are we fundamentally? And is there something, you know, of in us that is inherently good or inherently selfish or both? And, and if it, it's not so culturally driven as we just explored, um, does that provide then an opening to become more realistic about um, who we truly are and perhaps is that is that a way and and how how do we promote that sense of reality that perhaps we are not as selfish that we perhaps have a tendency to collaborate um, and, and all of that what a wonderful question what a wonderful idea you know i think it'd be it's a huge step to acknowledge that we're really designed as compassionate creatures hmm that we have an extraordinary gift, really unique in all of creation as we know it, for projecting our concern to, to others and acting on that concern. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we always took care and cared for and were concerned for those we knew. And yes. for the first many tens of thousands of years of our evolution, those we knew were part of a family, a clan, a relatively small social group. But the coherence of that group and our membership in that group were critical to our survival for these many tens of thousands of years. Now, because of our population, because of our communication technology, our group is in a very real way the global human population. We are interconnected to a degree where that compassion that helped us care for the elderly members of our little clan as we moved across the veldt, you know, um, now encompasses all of the elderly, all of the helpless and the weak globally. And thanks to science, Um, we understand that, in fact, our well-being is contingent on the well-being of of countless other species, that the overall health of the environment is critical to our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren's prosperity and health. And so 
where it's gradually dawning on us that we can exercise that kind of compassion, not just for people we know or people to whom we're with, you know, to whom we're directly related, but for for all of creation. And this is all being demonstrated not on a spiritual level, but you know, by by sociology and science and the obvious physical reality in which we live. Um, so I think acknowledging that set of things is, a, is an important first step. And then I think second, we have to acknowledge the forces that work against us hmm. in this. And those forces are, are economic and industrial uh, and political uh, systems that are in place that presently feed off of energies that are created through ambition and egotism and fear a lot of really ego-based phenomena that create a lot of the energy in many of our systems, as I say, business systems, political systems, social systems. And we should acknowledge that there's gonna be resistance to change. Hmm. And then I think third, we need to acknowledge how little we're accomplishing with aggression right now, hmm. how badly all of that is going. Right. And the central example is the fact that we doubled the population in about 40 years, the human population, and that every environmental problem that we confront and most of the social problems we confront are products of rapid population expansion hmm. combined with a lot of new consumption. Yeah. Um, that starts to outline the barrier that we're about to run into, which will force us to acknowledge the necessity of human mortality. You know, it, in effect, we're going to have to acknowledge that sacrifice is just necessary. And the thing that motivates sacrifice most powerfully is compassion. So I think that, you know, circumstances, are coming together, converging in such a way that um, the lesson is becoming more clear every day. Uh, for that reason, I think it's important that we develop our technology for enhancing our compassion. And um, that includes the business that you and I are in, the business of teaching people the practices of mindfulness which are abundantly demonstrated over the course of thousands of years mm -hmm. to enhancing people's capacity for compassion. So I think it's a, I think, you know, to bring it all the way home, I would say that, you know, I got involved mm -hmm. in the business of mindfulness because it seemed like one of the most pragmatic and material things I could do to improve the lives of future generations of human beings and other creatures. So, through your work at mindful.org, right, which is a, a leading portal and website for mindfulness and resources, you promote mindfulness and compassion, and your publications are viewed by, I think, around 2 million people each month. But, you know, if I look to the broader society and go back to politics, mindfulness is, and compassion is not a majority view yet, in, in politics, at least. Um, what, what do you think needs to happen for this to, to, to change and compassion becoming really the, this basic and fundamental cornerstone of politics and policy that, that you've kind of been alluding to and, and, and referring to? 
I don't know, you know, I think that's a very important question to which the answer is, is currently still a mystery. Mm. Um, my guess is that it has to start at an individual level that each of us needs to cultivate our gift for feeling kinship, our gift for feeling empathy, our gifts for compassion and a kind of unconditional love for others. And then we need to demonstrate that those practices, that, the, that that perspective brings us a sense of joy. Mm. Right now, if you went looking through the global media, virtually any country in the world, just watch television for a while, and the sources of joy are demonstrated to be wealth, power, um, physical attractiveness. And that's a pretty adolescent way of seeing it all. But it's been useful to the media um, to, it's been useful to human enterprise for a couple hundred years now to reinforce that particular lame mythology. I think each of us has an opportunity to demonstrate that there are better ways to live, that are, there, there are ways to live that are more fulfilling on a personal level and more uh, generous toward others simultaneously. And, but to do that, I think it requires that we accept our own vulnerability and that we give up our notion that each of us gives up our notion that we're more attractive than others and that makes us special or that we're more uh, wealthy or successful than others and that makes us special or even that we're more moral and ethical than others and that makes us special. Because the whole sense that e any of us is special and therefore protected or different mm. than everyone else undermines the practice of compassion right just that simple thing mm -hmm. and so i suppose that's what i perceive as the starting point and it clearly starts with me a typical human being i have thoughts of how special i am thousands of times a day but i am trying to exercise a kind of internal skepticism about my ego's claims in that regard. Mm. And I do find that, that, the, that there are teachings and there's instru abundant instruction out there to help us exercise this muscle of empathy and compassion and hopefully lower the volume of that egotistical voice trying to assert over and over again that um, you know, I'm special, I'm wonderful, I'm not vulnerable, and all those other things the ego likes to carry on about. Yes, 
that's so true thank you so much for for offering that and your humbleness there um i think we uh if we're all honest we, we recognize that um maybe just to conclude because unfortunately i think we're close to wrapping up um maybe just a, a final question about you know advice though uh if we bring it back to politics i i think i hear your message about starting with yourself do you think though that mindfulness has a role or compassion has specifically a role is something that can be taught as well um even in politics and, and do you know of initiatives in politics around that oh certainly i know of initiatives you know there's um you know across europe there's several governments that have instituted mindfulness programs the of several governments uh, including possibly yours that are that are teaching um meditation practices uh to national leaders on a daily basis you know we have a member of congress here in the united states who's written a book about mindfulness mm -hmm. tim ryan who's who's a leader of the mindfulness movement and carries it into public life so yeah there are things happening mm -hmm. and on the flip side You know, I spend, as you do, much of my life among people who are champions of these practices. And it's a long voyage and not, a, it's, you know, it, it's both an extremely challenging thing to talk about. It's extremely challenging to embrace it in your personal life. But the potential mm. is so beautiful. And on a personal level, the adventure is so limitless that I can't think of anything more interesting, you know? Mm, yeah. Um, I have great hopes that we can have positive effects in the world, but those hopes, those visions are not my primary motivation for my own mindfulness practice. I have discovered I have such a long way to go before I feel consistently warm, friendly, empathetic, compassionate toward others. And I've found that with the right instruction, the right teachers, the right practices and the right commitment, that I seem to be able to make a little bit of progress in that direction. Hmm. And it's thrilling. And as I say, I, it feels limitless. It feels like I could, ex I could devote my energy to this for the rest of my life and still have such a long way to go. Mm -hmm. And I find that thrilling. And that's a sense I'd like to share with others mm -hmm. that the benefits of this are not contingent upon changing the world during our lifetimes. The benefits are apparent immediately and very soon the benefits to those around us and to, to all of the living creatures in the world become evident. Mm. And what a terrific, interesting and thrilling thing to be engaged with. Absolutely. Thank you. So a word of 
patience, a word of encouragement from you, Brian. So thank you so much. I think this is a beautiful end to a very interesting interview, which I feel, again, um, could have gone on. And uh, I hope perhaps we'll, we'll have another opportunity to speak. Um, That'd be wonderful. I would yeah, love and, to do that. And of course, we'll have to see how um, how do you the elections go in the next few days. And perhaps that gives us an opportunity to come back. But thank you so much for now. Uh, I'm letting you go. And I... I um, I feel really inspired. So thank you. Thank, thank you, and thank for thank you for all the good work you do. It's important. Appreciate it. All right, take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Reflecting on the conversation with Brian, I'm struck by how important it is to remain mindful and compassionate right now. More Americans than expected have voted for a man who has a contempt for the truth, a man who divides and a man who places his personal interests before those of his people and the environment. But people have voted nevertheless for him and while we wait to find out who the ultimate winner of the US election is, we take a deep breath and sense how we feel and how those who have the most to lose from another four years of Trump might feel right now. Can we sense that our lives are connected? Do we sense the pain that has been inflicted? Then I invite you to reflect on what a helpful next step is as you move through the day, knowing that what we do, how we vote, and how we relate to the world around us matters. We will continue to follow the US elections, not because it's the news of the day, but because the outcome of this particular election will be present with us as we look to transition to a green and fair society. Thank you for listening and take care.